welcome to the Persuasion Lab podcast. I'm Martin Medeiros, expert negotiator. Unfortunately, the world isn't made to your specifications in all ways at all times, which means you need to be able to communicate your wants and needs so you can get them met. I'm here to teach you the tools and strategies so that you can do exactly that. Stay tuned after the episode for more information about the fully outfitted Digital Persuasion Lab or head over to thepersuasionlab.com to get started. This week in the Persuasion Lab, we're talking negotiation fails. So I started tracking examples of negotiation failures a few years ago, and I've been using them as case studies in my speeches, workshops, and classes where we can learn, kind of diagnose what happened, uh, pull from the lessons of all the research that I talk about in this podcast, and learn from it so we can avoid costly, and in today's example of negotiation fail, life-threatening consequences of negotiations gone wrong. So, multi-party negotiations are very complex. They can really challenge any type of leadership if you're getting a team together. In a lot of business contexts, we always work with teams. In fact, if you're working on your MBA, and I know there's a few MBA students who actually listen to the podcast, you're told to work into groups. And sometimes we have people with different schedules, motivations, and other things. So that's a simple example of a multi-party negotiation and certain behaviors crop up. We have a whole episode on multi-party, but in today's podcast, we're going to see that whenever a group comes together to solve a real world problem where they coalesce around the commonality of a topic, it may be a research consortium, open source group, and in today's example, solving a problem to a worldwide pandemic. Things happen, dynamics happen, mistakes are made. And we're going to look at the COVAX project. So it's organization kind of formed to warp speed a COVID-19 vaccine for the world, primarily less developed nations, smaller economies, and what have you. So let's get started. This program coalesced around the big heart and intelligence of Dr. Seth Franklin Berkeley, who's an American epidemiologist and CEO of the Gavi Alliance, a uh, global advocate for vaccines. And his wife, Cynthia Berkeley, Dr. Berkeley, who worked with the World Health Organization to set up a mechanism for getting these vaccines to people. Now, the project officially was called the COVID-19 Vaccines Global Access Facility, or simply COVAX. And what it ended up doing is suffering from a lot of problems in the early phases we've seen in multi-party negotiations, how they go wrong. So the problems with forming a multi-party negotiation is you want to keep the organization going around a common goal, but you also must diversify your member strength uh, for financing, supplier, supply chain, similar to having backup or redundant systems in anything else you do. And this is not what COVAX did. 
So the number one failure is lack of diversification. And sadly, COVAX went all in on India for a vaccine supplier because of their early success in infection rates. We now know that India was a late bloomer as far as uh, the pandemic severity. And as I write this, they were in the top two uh, infections per capita. Um, so regional bureaucracies in India may have led in part to supply chain problems or other issues, but they simply had no bandwidth to save the world uh, in COVAX when their own nation was in the middle of a rapid infection rate. So Dr. Berkeley didn't have a backup supplier. The nature of the pandemic is that it's very complex and the mathemati mathematical models don't always tell us what's going on to certainty that, hey, India has no problem. Let's go uh, for them as a primary supplier of the vaccine. So the team really didn't have all the data because every pandemic is a little bit different and they bet big on one source. That's a supply problem. That's a lack of diversification problem. In any multi-party negotiation, there's the same issue. You're trying to get together, say, a research consortium, and you have one big financer. Well, what if they go? What if they leave? Then the multi-party organization or coalition will, go, will fall apart. So when you're empty, entering a new relationship, uh, always have a backup. If you're an online service supplier, ensure you have redundant uh, uh, system connections, right? That's common. The same thing happens in multi-party transactions. Make sure you have primary and secondary at least. And that leads us to problem two is a failure to recognize human behavior. I see this a lot in politics where people don't anticipate what people actually do human behavior they hope they do things they think i want to change the world and they totally neglect you know half a million years of human evolution and say oh things will be different this time because i'm in office now or i'm the, the head of the company uh, that doesn't work you have to have some objective basis on saying how are people going to behave? So on an intellectual level, limiting the pandemic worldwide will save everyone. Why? Because high numbers of unvaccinated individuals increase the likelihood of variants and mutations. As I'm told, I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not an MD. So this saves both developing nations and developing nations because if those variants and mutations come out of developed nations, they're at a low risk. They have a vaccine. However, if they come out of a developing nation and then go to a developed nation, well, the developed nation will hurt as much as a developing one for that variant. So let's talk about human behavior. So if I'm in country X, I want to take care of my people first, especially in democratic republics. Why? Because I want to get reelected. Uh, researcher Dr. Richard Thaler is a Nobel 
prize-winning economist who was one of the first uh, economists to nego- to uh, anticipate irrational human behavior and deal with it. Uh, so in a purely global pandemic time frame, is it rational for a leader to take care of their own people first? You bet it is. In the face of a pandemic, is nationalism something that may or may more or less be in those countries' uh, best interest if you want to get reelected? Of course it is. So this is part of the calculus that wasn't part of the COVAX thought process. Good intentions come up against rational human behavior, and what is rational depends on the lens through which each party in a multi-party organization views it. You'll take care of your people if you're representing that organization. So taking a page out of Thaler's book, they were better off making the project infused with infused with what he calls uh, choice architecture. And what that deals with is pre-selecting the rational choice, giving the frame of reference that you're in. Uh, For example, if I'm in a multinational uh, vaccine organization, I'm going to anticipate that people will favor their own people first for vaccines, and I'm going to be very clear on telling them why this helps them not just to ask them hey we're doing this good thing save the world let's buy in unfortunately that is not persuasive enough to get the job done so choice architecture is uh, pre-selecting but it's not uh, coercive people can always opt out for example they can commit to a certain number of actual vaccines and later have some wiggle room to to pull out depending on how it actually falls out for example in the india case they can say we will provide all the vaccines but we'll reserve x percent just in case things go sideways and note with that knowledge Covax would have said hmm maybe i need a redundant system so that would inform us so choice architecture it's non-coercive it pre-selects the rational choice of the parties gives them information upon which to deal with their situation and in a multi-party negotiation generally people want the ability to opt out over time because things can come up so recognize human behavior when you're negotiating a deal or a contract in some type of relationship you've got is always valuable think of How will people behave out of the gate? What's a possible outcome? How do I expect them to behave? How would it be irrational for them to not conform to my bias in this case for doing good? Am I able to see the bias or will I go into some type of cognitive dissonance seizures or I like to call it a CDS basically cognitive dissonance is when you see something that doesn't compute so if i'm at who and i'm save the world and this all makes rational to me and then something doesn't work and my brain shuts down i'm like no that can't be right and i'll deny it even happened 
Like, what do you mean? India can't be having a crisis. How could that happen? We bet all our money on them. And then you go along in your regular routine knowing it's not going to work because your anchor tenant just had some issues. So we want to avoid being incoherent when in the uh, triggered by a cognitive dissonance seizure uh, by having anticipated evidence contrary to what our dominant thought is. It takes discipline, but it's important in negotiations. Problem three, misreading early victories as a steady state. So um, there's a technique or it's actually a behavior that has to do with, and I forget the name, please, listeners, inform me. Um, it's basically the last data point you think is going to be a continuation. So the early uh, success of COVAX, of course, everyone to the benefit of man was, yes, we want everyone to benefit from the vaccines. We'll sign up. And they got a few big victories early on, but then the pandemic started happening uh more severely in different jurisdictions, and uh, those data points did not continue that upward trend. So many people holding a magnanimous viewpoint, such as Drs. Berkeley, have so much momentum, and that alone leads to success. COVAX did amazing things. They started shipping vaccine three months when the world's richest countries like the U.S. started administering their own first shots, which is unprecedented. That is a COVAX win. That's not a failure because in the past, it often would take 10 years, 10 years for the developed world to start giving vaccines to the developing world. So 10 years to three months, that's a huge win for COVAX. Now, what that happened is that early success, three months, indicated that this thing is positive. It has momentum. It'll keep going. And that's not what happened. Things went sideways because of our next failure. Problem four, proper communication of a false equivalency. And what does that mean? In the Persuasion Lab, we communicate our needs to the world using persuasion, influence, and negotiation, and how effective we are determines if, in fact, those needs are met. COVAX accepted cheap substitutes for what they really wanted due to lack of effective communications. So back to our multi-party theme, in, uh, say, a membership organization, each member has their own baggage and semantically charged words that may have different meanings to them. Uh, the semantic issue is what many at WHO have when it comes to equivalency problems. They wanted something, in this case, actual vaccines, but they let developed nations offer a false equivalency, which is money. What do developed nations have? Money. What didn't they have? A manufactured good called a vaccine that was in great demand. So COVAX slash WHO thought they needed money and that was a equal equivalent to the vaccine and it's actually not what they wanted. So money doesn't help 
a constrained supply only in a truly free market, which was not the case here. Uh, so how does a market work? Prices go uh, where there's demand, they inflate, and more people come in to drop um, drop prices. And in this case, vaccines. If we, if we were doing a pure market mechanism, the highest bidder would win, but that's not what you can do with vaccines. Just like states have different laws when uh, you know people try to sell you know, a bag of ice for $50 after a hurricane. Um, these price controls are to say, hey, that's really not fair because the highest bidder will win. And we, this is something that transcended all income groups and it should uh, help everyone. So these price controls actually in the long term, they work fine. If you're selling ice for $50 a bag, there'll be a lot of people driving to the location of the hurricane with bags many, many bags of ice, and that'll drop the price. But in times of exigency and urgency, we say that's not good public policy. We really want to have some type of control, and we're going to offer vaccines, at, in this case, at a certain price. And all the wealthy nations throwing money at WHO and COVAX really didn't work. Uh, so money doesn't help a constrained supply in exigent circumstances. So, the first problem was COVAX started accepting money. So, false equivalency, and then their actions, hey, okay, you can't come up with the, your surplus vaccines, I'll take your money. And then they became a fundraising organization. And if any of you have sit, sat on any nonprofit boards and done fundraising, it is a full-time occupation and it is uh, not easy. So that will hamper maybe higher value things like supply chain, distribution, organizational stuff that COVAX would probably become, but they actually turned into a fundraising organization. So the EU said they can help, here's cash, and the U.S. did give, I think, 80 million doses initially. I think they're a lot more. I think it's... Um, as I talk about this, it's up to half a billion. So um, the the issue was that they really wanted those vaccines. They didn't want the money, and they didn't communicate that equivalency, uh, uh, that uh, money doesn't equal vaccines. We want vaccines. And that's how the delay in getting the developed world a vaccine happened. And the fifth problem I want to talk about with COVAX is this um, haggling culture that they slid into instead of more of a procurement, uh, kind of a strategic procurement organization structure. So if your staff is not negotiating, securing resources for a vaccine, but they're trying to get money primarily, the fundraising organization, but they also started haggling over price and distribution, all these different things. Well, you know, someone in, say, a procurement organization would say, okay, what's the budget? We have the money, we have these donations, so price in this case is not that important. How do we focus our negotiation efforts on getting those vaccines? COVAX morphed from a vaccine distributor uh, to kind of a, a aggregator which they were supposed to be a distributor, aggregator and distributor, uh, to a fundraising organization, and two different roles emerged. 
which were back to human behavior. It's easy to write a check. It's hard to distribute a commodity that has a shelf life like a vaccine with certain requirements of uh, refrigeration. Had they done more of that work, um, that's a very different task. And then they got into this reportedly um, exercise of really haggling on price. The COVAX team became price hagglers over the 2 billion doses they targeted that they wanted for the developing world. And it was unclear because people were like, 2 billion, is that going to cover it? But they, the goal, the stated goal that wasn't communicated from what's been reported is not 100% coverage of those nations. It was more like 20%, primarily first responders, people in the medical fields who have high contact with infected people so they could help people, uh, at least initially. And this came over a price haggle about these vaccines they could get and people who did it at WHO COVAX weren't really skilled negotiators because they burned a lot of clock mixed uh, talking about vaccine vaccinated populations when the goal was actually first responder vaccines at least initially so the lesson here is COVAX probably should have hired a procurement team who knows a little bit about negotiation and about pricing and framing the issues. Uh, say uh, maybe they could have asked a Global 10 company with a chief procurement officer to help them out. Uh, who knows, you know, pricing distribution and different things, uh, logistics supply chain, uh, and perhaps a big pharma distributor. But again, that was not done. They were morphed into this odd thing about, um, you know, per vaccine cost when that really wasn't one of the issues. So they, it's a leadership issue, it sounds like. So those are the five lessons uh, I learned from the COVAX failure. Lately, it's been doing a lot better, but got off to a great start, really had a rough middle, and right now it's getting better. So the five issues I see their problem was. One, lack of diversification and redundancy in the face of the unknown. If you don't know what's going on, if you don't have all the facts, you have to not double down on one thing. That's very risky. You kind of need some type of diversification. Again, what was their problem? Having India as a primary supplier. Two, failure to recognize human behavior. In their calculus, they never thought, wow, when this thing hits, uh, nations, you know, democratic republics will probably want their people first and uh, their people vaccinated first. And how do I make that that case rather than just be big hearted? And there are arguments that can be made and I discussed them, but that didn't happen. The third thing, misreading early victories as the steady state. With any multi-party organization, good things happen early on. There's a lot of passion and enthusiasm. People love it, love it, love it. They're all on board. But a few cycles in a negotiation and there's a little bit of fatigue and drop off. So you have to maintain that energy beyond the 
initial victories to the steady state. And again, COVAX did great things. Getting those vaccines three months versus 10 years to developed nations, unprecedented. Good job. Fourth, communications and false equivalencies. This is when they started taking money instead of what they really wanted, vaccines, and then it changed the organization. And then that leads us to our fifth issue. And once they started taking money, then that was their focus and they started haggling in per dose vaccine and miscommunicating, well, who's the initial wave? And that was first responders, not the entire population of these uh, developed nations, at least initially. So those are the five issues. I hope we took away some lessons from this negotiation fails and working on a few more. So how did you like it? Comment. Uh, We have uh, a blog companion and show notes. So keep informed. And we also have a great newsletter And there's a link to that in the show notes as well, that more and more people are subscribing. And once again, I thank you so much for everyone who is subscribing to the podcast. Thanks so much for listening. If you haven't yet, please hit subscribe and leave a review and a rating so other folks can find the podcast. And, of course, the fully outfitted Digital Persuasion Lab is open and ready for all your negotiation experiments. If you head over to thepersuasionlab.com, you'll find tools like strategic plan assessments, deal point checklists, operational considerations, scripts for specific types of negotiations, and access to exclusive personal consultations. The tools and databases are updated monthly, if not weekly. So there's always something new to learn and try. Remember, we communicate our needs to the world using persuasion, influence, and negotiation, and how effective we are at using those techniques determines if, in fact, our needs are met. This is Martin Madeiras in the Persuasion Lab. Thank you for joining us.